When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. White people realizing that Black people (laughs) experience racism on a daily basis. Oh my God, like me having to realize how much I have swallowed and pushed down. I can't just do that anymore because it has taken such a toll on my health mentally and physically. I used to just have to be perfect. I give myself no leeway ever. I've had so many sicknesses from stress and running myself into the ground and not thinking that I was good enough or pretty enough, all the not enoughs. And now I'm finally at a place where I'm like, you're good enough. It's a daily practice still, but yeah. I'm Abby Allen and I am not a model minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. Today, we're talking to Abby Allen, founder of Neon Butterfly, the only creative agency of its kind run by women of color. Abby's mission is to not only reflect the needs and experiences of the changing face of America, but to help organizations infuse their efforts with messaging and practices that promote a better world for us all. She spent two decades working with some of the world's biggest brands and continues to do so on her own. Yeah, what I love about this one, Sharon, (laughs) with this one, what I love about Abby is the way she says why she does what she does. It's not because it's the right thing to do, but because it's the smart thing to do. And you can just like tell if you've, if you've ever seen her speak, if you've read her like ad age op-ed from about a month ago, she's just fire. It's, It's awesome. She's so great. And she also did this amazing photography project called Perfectly Mixed. You can check it out at perfectly-mixed.com of taking pictures of people across the country who are in interracial relationships and who have uh, interracial children. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful, like photojournalistic journey of that. Is she going to come out and take a picture of you guys in LA? I hope so. Abby, come visit me. We've got beautiful people out here. <laughs> who are half Asian and half black. What I found hilarious, she didn't watch TV growing up. Like that's so much of my American identity comes from like far too much TV as a child. I kind of related to that a little bit. We we watched TV growing up, but my mom was like very much against us watching bad TV. So we were only allowed to watch educational programs. And growing up when I was very young, it was limited. Wait, what's bad TV? What's what's something you didn't get to watch? So like any show that wasn't Sesame Street, for example, or like anything that wasn't an educational thing. So a comedy, for example, I wouldn't. So you didn't like see stuff like Growing Pains or things like that? I did when I got older, but it wasn't until probably the age of eight. So up until I was eight, it was purely just television for the sake of learning something. It was never like, I never watched cartoons. Saturday morning cartoons actually was never really part of my childhood because my parents. I'm so sorry. Yeah. They didn't even know, like they didn't even let me know that existed. (laughs) I didn't even know. (laughs) Well, the other thing I liked about Abby is she chose to move to one of my favorite places in this country, Cincinnati, Ohio. And not to be, she's doing it unironically. Like you got to listen to why she says she's there, what her and her boyfriend, husband, partner, what what they're doing out there. It, it's really cool. I, I just like her motivations and her way of kind of tackling problems or or challenging assumptions. I, I had so much fun in this conversation. Yeah, and I think she does it with so much heart and so much passion, and the fact that she's also doing it with big brands, big companies. Like she talks about how a big reason why she got into 
advertising and media is because she wants to change the narrative of what's happening in the world. And I think she single-handedly is doing that right now. So it was really incredible to spend time with her, especially because she's someone that I've personally known for over 20 years now. And I feel like I actually got to know her all over again on this show. Well, I hope you'll enjoy our conversation with Abby. Hi, Abby. Thanks so much for joining the show today. Hi, I'm really happy to be here, Sharon. I am too. I feel like we've known each other for a long, long time. I've known you probably as long as I've known Raman. So it's kind of exciting for me to have the three of us on the show together today. So basically, we're just going to tell stories about Sharon the whole time. Is that what this is? Oh, no. This is an intervention. No one wants to hear that. I know. Well, now that I know that Raman, you were Sharon's client, I kind of want to hear about that and like how you became friends. I actually don't know that story. Because when you're a client, I feel like I always try not to be the asshole client, but I'm pretty sure I had my moments where I was. And I guess when I moved to New York, Sharon and I were just, we were friends on Friendster or something. And so... Now you're dating us all. Yeah, right. Exactly. Hey, this is an old people's podcast. (laughs) Right? 30 and 40 is the new old. So Right? (laughs) When you said Friendster, I just thought of Napster. Do you guys know Napster too? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Napster and Kazaa. Exactly. (laughs) And there was MySpace. Oh, my gosh. We're just, we're totally dating ourselves. (laughs) So, Abby, you're kind of a famous person in the sense that you're known, you've done amazing work in the New York ad industry, but who were you before that? Like, can you tell us a story from your childhood? Yeah. So one of my fun facts that I sent over was that I grew up without a TV. So, I mean, it's a major, major thing because I feel like it has formed everything (laughs) because, I mean, we literally, my dad and my brother and I, well, my dad, he thought that we only had to go to school for socialization purposes, but that we'd never really get a good education from somebody else. So from the time we were like three, we were being homeschooled. We did our own homeschooling and then we went to school. So we were reading the Iliad and the Odyssey on the weekends. So by the time I went to school and we had to read those books, I was like, oh, I've already done this. And it was because we didn't have a TV and we had no TV on purpose because my dad thought that it was for lazy people. So, (laughs) yeah. So then the irony is that I work in media now. What what did your dad do? What kind of work did he do? So my dad was a mental health worker in psychiatry at New York Hospital. So my parents met at New York Hospital. So it's an interesting thing because I'm giving you a little window into my dad, who was from Jamaica, he was a Jamaican immigrant. And he came to the US as a a grown man. So he came in the late 70s. So he was Jamaican, (laughs) (laughs) and serious about education. And I mean, like a lot of immigrants, families, right? It was all about school (laughs) and learning. So TV and fun. I mean, he literally once said, why do you need to have fun? Fun is ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like my dad. Yeah, exactly. Fun is a waste of time. Yeah. So, I mean, that was a super formative thing that we spent all our time essentially training. So learning traditional reading, writing, and arithmetic, but also He taught us how to ride a two-wheeler when we were three because he read that your ears are balanced, whatever it is in your inner ear that needs to be formed for you to be able to balance on a two-wheeler is formed by the time you're three. So then he'd like strut us out at the playground and parents would be staring and be like, who is this insane guy (laughs) with these little kids? So (laughs) yeah, anyway, I I just, because I got to ask, so what's mom's story? Uh, Yeah, so mom mom is a white, blonde hair, blue eyed woman. She is an army brat and they met at New York hospital and they couldn't be more different in terms of appearance. (laughs) So my dad was really tall and really dark and my mom's really fair and really short. So yeah, I like to say I have so many dichotomies and it's like, why I'm good at what I do, I think, because I've never been able to be in one box. I've always been like all these different things put together. So my mom and dad had in common, I guess, a belief that 
we could do anything and that it's really important to work as hard as you can and do your best at everything. So she was supportive of this rigorous at-home curriculum, but she was the balance. She would stop him and be like, okay, they do have to hang out with their friends. So it was a good yin and yang thing. Mm -hmm. Wow. And you grew up in New York City, right? Yeah, on the Upper East Side. So again, another dichotomy. So people are like, oh, yeah. Yeah, you're not an old Jewish lady. Like, sorry. <laughs> exactly. I'm not. And nor were we wealthy. But I grew up there and amongst that. And I went to private schools. And so that was a, another interesting thing. So I've always straddled multiple worlds. Yeah. I already have a sense for kind of how you were shaped, how you're similar to that little girl on the Upper East. You do in five minutes? <laughs> well, I also speed read your, your op-ed. And you did? You, know, you talk yeah, about you people's parents. That thing's fire. No, but, and we'll put in the show notes. It's really worth reading your recent op-ed in Ad Age. Question I have though, how are you different from that little girl? Beyond not living in New York City anymore, right? I mean, seriously. Yeah. Yes, you've got this mixture, of all these dichotomies, but those have sustained you. What's different? Yeah, that's a great question. Honestly, and this is a little heavy with the George Floyd situation and this kind of, I guess, I mean, for lack of a better way of saying it, white people realizing that black people <laughs> experience racism on a daily basis. They and, do? What? <laughs> exactly, right. <laughs> Are you There's sure been about a lot. That? Oh my God. Me having to realize how much I have swallowed and pushed down and all of that. So I'm different from the little girl in that I just don't do that anymore to the same extent because it has taken such a toll on my health <laughs> mentally and physically. I used to just be like, I have to be perfect. And I still have that. And Sharon knows, you know, and, and again, it's another thing that makes me good at what I do, but I give myself no leeway ever. And as a little girl, I had shingles. I've had so many kind of mental kind of things pop up, sicknesses and stuff from stress and just like running myself into the ground and not thinking that I was good enough or pretty enough, all the not enoughs. And now I'm finally at a place where I'm like, no, Abby, you're good enough. I mean, it's a daily practice though still, yeah. but yeah. I think a lot of us have that moment in our lives where you're trying, right? You're, it's almost like you're trying too hard to aspire to this thing that you think is success. Or, and I, I'm saying this from personal experience, right? But then at some moment, and to your point, it's a daily practice. I, I love thinking about it that way. But because it still creeps up, man, it still creeps up in the back of my head, that FOMO or whatever that thing is. But what was one of those catalyst moments where you're like, no, you know, fuck that. <laughs> I got to be me. I got to be true to myself. What was one of those moments for you? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a good question. There have been so many, but even writing that piece in Ad Age, just because that's like top of mind, putting myself out there and realizing that I had to say, so the article is about like, really explaining that asking Black and Brown people to talk about diversity and inclusion is not the same as asking someone to talk about their experience with marketing or social media content design and development. It's our life. It is a traumatic experience. And realizing that I had to say that for, for the younger me and for all the people out there that I know are being asked to do this stuff and are literally having their bodies and hearts broken by having to have these conversations and not getting compensated or not even having it be acknowledged how hard this is. And it was very scary. I had to really dig deep and be like, okay, Abby, like you got to be willing if there's negative responses or whatever, whatever it is, because what goes along with that fear of not being enough is a fear of people not liking you. I mean, just point blank. Yeah. I want people to like me. <laughs> and I think that you have to be willing sometimes to have people not like you or disagree with you or so yeah well, I want to ask a question about that because I don't want to oversimplify the work you do but you're in creative services you're in the agency world still but you're doing your own thing and as a former technology guy so much of his product let the product speak for itself and in your world do you let the work speak for itself or is it because while you are mixed you were viewed by the world as a black woman does that affect it? Does it like, I can't just say, let the work speak for itself because I'm black? No. And it's funny that you say that, the, that I never thought that the world saw me as a black woman until 
because I grew up in in Manhattan, right? So people actually always, I mean, at least what they told me, <laughs> they always seemed to know that I was biracial. So it wasn't until actually in the past 10 years when someone at this ashram type thing I was at in Asheville, North Carolina, this woman was like, you're the nicest black woman I've ever met. I mean, again, another traumatizing experience. And I was like, are you kidding me? I mean, I obviously I was speechless, but I was like, oh my God, the world sees me as black. I guess that makes sense. It's interesting that you say that about being in New York. That's a really interesting point. When I first moved here about 10 years ago, black friend of mine. I have black friends. Haha, I know. But my friend Derek, he came to visit and he's from Cincinnati, actually. And I had to go do a couple of work meetings and he rode the subway around and I met up with him that evening. And he's like, Roman, the thing about New York is the diversity punches you in the face here. And he said that as an amazing thing. You don't, we're all a different shade of brown here. But in Ohio, in Alabama, where I grew up, there's the black lunch table and there's the white lunch table and everything in between. And that's a beautiful thing about cities in general, be it London Actually, Western cities, you don't see this in Asian cities as much, but people can be like, oh, I've seen someone who's like you. You don't round up or round whatever to some other box. Right. Exactly. 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 Yeah. So, and I I think your question though was about the work speaking for itself. Can you say a bit more about what you mean by that? Well, you you were talking about the insecurity of wanting to be liked. And so you can't divorce yourself from is it because you're in the agency world or is it because you're interracial, biracial? I'm sorry, I'm using the term wrong. Please put me in my place. It's okay. I know that's the role you play on this show. <laughs> idiot. It's, it's a role I was born to play. Well, our listeners, I'm like, no, seriously, like our listeners want to know this, right? Why can't you just say, why do you have these insecurities? Why? Because you're good at your, what you do. Why isn't it just the work? Why can't the work just be? Oh, well, I'm very secure in the work that I do. Okay. You know, that part's awesome. Okay. Yeah, no, I do. It is, but but it's yeah, very it's awesome. taken a very long time because of this fear of not being good enough. And I mean, we all know about the black tax, right? I mean, black people have to work harder, right? And, and again, this is one of those things that I have, of course, internalized. Whatever label the world as put on me, it was never white. So I was always other, right? So I always had this thing of I have to do better or I have to do more. But more than that, it was driven by my father. It wasn't so much, I think I'm a minority, so I have to work harder. Not so much, not in the way that other people have, because also I am privileged in the sense that I have lighter skin, I have hair that became cool in the early 90s. You know what I mean? So I'm not going to sit here and act like I have had the same disadvantages as someone with darker skin. It runs the gamut. So my work absolutely does speak for itself. But I, you know, so one of the things I do struggle with all the time is like I have to find balance because I never think it's good enough. Where does that come from? My dad, for sure. Yeah. Man, if he just let you watch TV. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's also a really, really good thing. Because if I didn't have that, the rigor with which I approach everything, I would not trade it. It just needs to sometimes be toned down right. yeah. so that I can rest. You're so type A. <laughs> yeah, I really am. I don't want to ascribe that to myself because it's a, it's a negative. And I think there's so much white supremacy and patriarchy wrapped up in that. But it's true. And again, if you wait, 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 hang on, hang on. In the term type A? Yeah. Unpack that. Seriously, I want to know. Unpack that for me. Not just the term, but the fact that usually when you call someone type A, it's positive. Hmm. Yeah. We all say it and we're joking, but it's positive. It's like, you don't want to be a type B person, right? Because type B people are kind of seen as lazy. Right. Yeah. They watch too much TV. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going the other way. I'm like a bit of a forced extrovert. And so people would call me out as a type A, but it takes energy from me to put this out. I don't actually know what a B, C or a D person is, but I'm not type A on this podcast, on stage, on TV, I'm type A. But so I actually, I don't like the term type A. I don't like it either. And I don't like it because it puts value on grind culture. 
and on perfection. There's this whole thing about grind porn right now. Yeah, yeah it, that exactly. sounds terrible. But it's like, I'm hustling. I'm working 80 hours a week. Isn't that cool? And yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's not. Like, no, terrible. it's actually not. And it's perpetuating systems of violence. It's violent. And so that's what I'm really trying to unravel in myself, in the way that I work and in how I work. And <laughs> Because that that's is what's rewarded, though, right? It's what's rewarded. Yeah. 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 Another word that you've mentioned that you don't like is minority. Can you tell us about that? Why? Yeah. So we were talking about this at the beginning, right? Black and brown people are the majority in the world. So when we call ourselves a minority, it is disempowering because it is not true. So that's why I really don't use that term anymore. And it's better to say like underrepresented groups. There's many different terms. And I do a lot of work now. I don't even want to say in that space because it should not be a separate space. So I'm super big on that. I spent my entire career not not working at, I'm doing air quotes, multicultural agencies because I, <laughs> yeah. like a, yeah. it's a ridiculous word. There is just culture. There's just culture. And we live in a multicultural world, right? So anyway, the term minority is related to that. It's all these terms that are used to take our power away. And so for someone someone like you, you, you're biracial, you grew up on the Upper East Side in private schools. But I went to public school till sixth grade. That's okay, so you did public and you did private. Right. <laughs> I mean, I've got to imagine that at moments you felt as if you were the minority. Oh. In some of those yeah, situations, absolutely. right? Absolutely, yes. So in the minority with a like small M. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, always. And I have spent my entire life in predominantly white spaces. And by predominantly, I mean, all white, except for me <laughs> spaces. So I went to public school. And one of my fun facts, too, is that Alicia Keys was in my class. And my mom was friends with her mom. And it was very she was the outgoing star, right? And <laughs> I was like the quiet kind of more nerd academic one, mixed girl in the class. So that actually, it was a little traumatizing. So I was like, oh, I'm the uglier, less talented, mixed other, you know what I mean? So anyway, I've always felt like I'm the minority and I've always felt like I'm weird or different or, but it's funny, I've heard some other people on your podcast say that they enjoyed that. So they never really felt, I don't know, it didn't bother them to be like the only this or the only that. And I, I actually was wishing I could kind of chime in and be like, but how long did it take for you to get to that? Or <laughs> So yeah. I, yeah, because brown kid, I grew up in Alabama, and there were only 13 other Indian families or so. So there weren't other brown kids. And <laughs> but now when there are pockets of Indian communities in this country and same with Chinese as well and black as when Jamaican, et cetera. But I didn't grow up in one of those. I didn't grow up in Atlanta. I didn't grow up in Houston. I didn't grow up in Newark. And now when I find myself at that Indian wedding with all Indian people who all went to school together, I feel left out. I don't feel comfortable. In fact, if anything, the only Indian people I really get along with, sorry, Indian people, oh, this is changing as I get older, but it was ones like me, ones who grew up in white society, right? I kind of viewed myself as white, even though we had Indian music blaring at home on the weekends. So what was that like for you since saying you grew up mostly around white people? What happens when you have to enter black culture at that wedding, at that party, et cetera? What's that like for you? Yeah. And I mean, I love that you're bringing this up because this is also directly related to the fact that race itself is a construct, right? So- <laughs> We can have the skin color that we have, right? But who do we culturally feel more connected to? And that has nothing to do with your skin color, actually, right? Or very little, oftentimes. I said in some something else I wrote that a white Southerner, like you're from Alabama. So just by nature of the fact that you lived in a Southern place, you might actually know more about Black American culture in some ways than I do just because you grew up in Alabama and there's so much of black American culture that has permeated all of Southern culture. Yeah. But I want to kind of yeah. push back on that a little because I think, okay, so I'm just going to make the argument as play the immigrant card or ch child of immigrant card here. 
I think the statement you made is accurate as Americans. And I am an American. My daughter's American. My wife is Chinese American. We're all Americans, right? And that's cool, even though we're, we've got a dumpster fire of a country right now with the pandemic. <laughs> but I'm really proud to be American. However, the idea of skin color being a construct, I do think in parts of the world, the culture and skin, skin color, color, race, race is a construct. Fair, fair. Okay. Very different. Fair. Okay. Because I was going to like, real. Skin color is very real. <laughs> yeah. But it's just like, to me, race and culture are more intertwined. And I'm not saying my answer is the right one, but for me, it's intertwined because my race, Indian, I guess, or South Asian, maybe to broaden out a little bit is so tied to the culture. And to be clear, I'm a little divorced from the culture. I don't speak the language. I know enough to get around in the kitchen, but I'm not a religious person. However, I'm an atheist, but I see immense value in the world for religion because I think it is a cultural manifestation of faith. You can't understand, and I'll speak only to one I know, you can't understand Indian culture without understanding Hinduism and Islam. You just can't. And you can't set, so to me, the idea of separating race from culture Again, maybe maybe that's based on like a country and a nationality thing, maybe not within the melting pot that is America, to your point about the South, so to speak. I don't yeah, know. like let me give you an example. Also, as a child of an immigrant, right, my dad knew knew nothing about Black American culture. Yeah. Nothing. So yeah. I didn't grow up, like I didn't know, you know, any of the the things about like, you know, Black families having massive family reunions or like watermelon or like any of the things that like you know that was a joke and someone will probably comment about it but all the things <laughs> no one's listening Abby it's okay <laughs> but you know what I mean all the things that like are you know make up black American culture which again I'm generalizing because there are also subsets of black American yeah, 100%, 100%. culture but Jamaican culture which also has subsets is its own thing entirely so I think, yeah, it's problematic to conflate race and culture in the way that, that we do here. But that's like a bigger issue, I think, discussion. But as it relates to me, it's like people assume just because I am Black that I have certain cultural things <laughs> that are familiar to me. And of course I do because I've learned them, but I didn't grow up with aunties or lots of other things that people often assume. Yeah. And so I think because of that, it's given me again, a unique perspective because I'm able to kind of stand outside of, of a lot of it. Yeah. yeah. No, one, thing, <laughs> one thing I love about seriously, a handful of countries in this world, United States being one of them, like seriously, one of the things that makes me like so proud to be American and you see it in Canada, you see it in the UK, and you see it in Australia. And again, there is a history of colonialism and how we didn't all come over the same way. But that's an advantage. We have this exposure. If you're in Norway, you don't have that exposure. If you are in mainland China, you don't have that. And if you're in India, you've got a bunch of different Indian cultures. But you, if you're in Punjab, you pretty much only have exposure to Punjabi people, right? So that's and even and something my relatives overseas never understood you don't live in the same state as your parents anymore. We're a culture of moving around and mixing it up. And that lets you stand outside or inside if you want to, I think. Yeah, I mean, and, and frankly, American culture, the immigrant experience is American culture. That is that is America, to your point. You know what I mean? So that, again, is is so related to, I think, the narrative that I guess I'm trying to change and a lot of people are trying to change, Right is what does American culture even mean? Oh, it ain't all Big Macs. <laughs> exactly. It's your story. It's my story. Yeah. It's Sharon's right. story. It's, yeah, it is the descendants of slaves, American slaves. So fast forward to where you are now. You live in Cincinnati, which I've visited Cincinnati, I think, twice in my life. It's and one of the best cities in America. I'm just, <laughs> I, I will die on that sword. I love that town. And Sorry. you're not saying that facetiously. No, I'm not. I, I definitely became a grown before I met my wife. I, I spent really about years there. Yeah. It has yeah, a both, very special place in They're both PNGers. They're both ex Oh, you're both PNGers. Okay. Because people are always complaining that they can't meet people here. But in if you met a PNG, that makes sense. Okay. No, but no, I, I want to, when I lived there, so my wife worked in R&D, so in like a different function, which is like a completely different culture of the company. It's a big oh, company. Oh, we know. Right? 
<laughs> yeah. But my next door neighbor, I can't think now he's at GE, but back then he wasn't. The town, I spent time working for this nonprofit on North Side. It's it's got pockets and neighborhoods and it's got its own it's got its problems, let's be clear. But it's sorry, I'm a big fan of the town unironically. Abby, you tell us why you're in Cincinnati. Yeah, and I love that you're saying you're a fan of it, quite frankly, because I think it's one of the most underrated cities in the country. And why I'm here is because I obviously used to come here a lot since I worked on PNG for the decades, kind of. And I've watched the city transform. And then strangely, my brother started, he's a labor lawyer, and he came out here and loved it and moved and ended up going to law school here. So, yeah. So then I started coming even more. And then when this election happened, I was like, you know what? I need to go somewhere where my vote will really count. And I need to go somewhere where I can make a difference on the ground in a bigger way. And also I want to be be in middle America so I can understand more about what's going on. Quite frankly, I got really tired of the echo chamber of the coasts. It started to feel like just a bunch of, you know, kind of elite, elite coastal people patting themselves on the back. And I was becoming one of them. We say the right things. We read the right books. We, you know, show up at some protests and like our job is done. And I got really tired of that. And I'm like, no. And then also just dumping on people in the rest of the country and also people who don't agree with your your beliefs, you know, instead of trying to understand why, why do they believe what they believe? So I'm here to understand why and to kind of live less of a kind of bubbled life. So I told you the story before we started recording, like one of the, like the early nuggets of this show was in Cincinnati, an argument with my roommate about immigration. And my roommate is on the other side of the aisle for me, this roommate at the time, right? And I think part of the problem in this country, on the left and on the right, is we're in our bubbles. And the internet makes it easier, urban environment, even neighborhoods, frankly. Even Cincinnati, I mean, what neighborhood do you live in in Cincinnati? I live in North Avondale. And I'll okay, say good for you. Thank you. Okay, because I mean, look, I love downtown. I love East Walnut Hills. But if you're in the cool, gentrified Hyde Park area... You're in a bubble. Well, and there's no black people. There's barely any black people. So <laughs> yeah. I'm not trying to do that again, ever. <laughs> but I, we, I mean, we have to mix it up. And it's not just, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, so you're, you're bringing up a great point. So, of course, when we moved here, everyone expected us to live in Hyde Park or Oakley or something where all the, like, I guess, transplants, if you will, yep. or, yep. or like, right, people live. And we were like, no, we want to live in a diverse neighborhood. And so North Avondale was one of the, I think the first neighborhood that was integrated, had an integrated pool in the whole city. And because of that, it has just a long history of integration with Blacks and Jews and whites learning how to work together. And so my boyfriend actually became president of the Neighborhood Association as soon as we moved in. And so we've been, we're really dedicated to helping kind of mend a lot of what's broken in the neighborhood and bring blacks and whites together. So that's that's what we've been doing. (laughs) It's not easy, but he's white. So we make a good duo in that regard. (laughs) How'd you guys meet? Did you meet out here in New York? No, we actually met in LA. So I lived in LA right before this. Yeah, we met on OkCupid because I literally, again, so I was using online dating as a way to just go out with people I wouldn't normally meet in real life. Because again, everything is so, so segregated. Like, I don't care where you are, it's segregated. (laughs) And it's deliberately so. Well, do you think that, is that the man doing it? Or do we as human, we're animals, right? With lizard brains. Do you think we opt into that? Like we subconsciously just opt in? I think it's both. It's absolutely systemic. I mean, just look at redlining. Not enough people know the history about that. Yep, yep. But it's yeah. absolutely deliberate. And then once it becomes, after so many years of that happening, then it becomes, wait, that's weird. The Jamaican guy you had on your show who said Stephane, that, yeah. Yeah, Stephane, that everyone moved out as soon as his family moved in. Which, I mean, I started tearing up when I heard that. I mean, he jumped right over it. But like, I was like, I'm tearing up because someone's listening to our show and quoting us back episodes. (laughs) 
Oh, good. I care. I wanted to honor the work you guys are doing. <laughs> so I did my homework. Flattery <laughs> will get you everywhere. <laughs> yeah. But so then I think that's the thing. It, these stories and narratives are perpetuated, right? All around us. And then we start making those choices. I'm even, we're all guilty of it, right? Yeah. 100%, so yeah. yeah, I mean, anyway, it's both. It's like this matrix. I always forget it, but it's like being unconsciously unaware and you're trying to migrate to being consciously aware of all times. Right. But, and that's a, it's like a two by two matrix, but we all start out not, we're all blind. We all have blinders in uncertain areas. And then until someone tells you that these blinders exist, then you can look for them and then you can think about them, but it takes a while to kind of, to remove them. Yeah. I mean, I always say it's like, you have to clean up your own side of the street. So my Buddhist practice and my spiritual practice is a huge part of my life as well. And that's another reason it's related to why I moved to Cincinnati. Because like you said, we are all guilty of stereotyping others and judgments and all of that. And it's, we have to each do our own internal work and see where am I perpetuating the violence and oppression that I'm witnessing in the world and just work on yourself. Don't bother pointing fingers just root it out in yourself, and then the world will be a better place. <laughs> this Buddhist practice, how did that start? How did you get into Buddhism? Well, I've always, I mean, since childhood, like we went to a very progressive, let's call it Christian church that essentially brought in a lot of Eastern philosophy. So we didn't see Jesus as this being that was different than us. He was more like a realized being, like Buddha or Muhammad, something that we could all ultimately are capable of being, right? Yep, yep. So that was always in me. But then, I don't know, somewhere somewhere along the line at some agency job, I started feeling, what am I doing every day? This is like meaningless. And so I was like, what do I love doing? I love doing yoga. So I started going to Bikram all the time, actually, because I am, I do have a tendency for the overachieving thing. So I'm like, <laughs> get me in a hot room and like... <laughs> I'll just suffer. Bikram, Bikram is very type A yoga. Like you are so funny. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would wake up at 6 a.m. every day and go before work. And then I was like, all right, I got to learn more about the philosophy. And that led to me studying with a woman named Kelly Morris and doing, ended up rebranding her yoga training. And she integrated Buddhism into our teacher training because back in the day, it was just all one one philosophy, Hinduism, Buddhism, all one thing. And so it would- Wait, wait, sorry. Hang on, hang on. I might've missed that and I might be borderline offended. That's like saying Asian fusion. So is it? No, 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 no. Go, go dig in. Yes. Absolutely. No, no, look, hang on. I know Siddhartha Gautama, you know, he was a Hindu prince. He walked away from it. To be clear, Bud was- and I'm like, just as much I'm a comic book nerd, I'm like a religion yeah, nerd. Me too. Buddha and Jesus were super parallel. It's Jesus was an exiled Jew and Buddha, because he had superpowers and Buddha created superpowers effectively, but he left the Hindu practice. He left his royalty. So, but I guess, mm -hmm. but the belief practice and because Hinduism, and I'm not going to give it a pass, even though that's what I was raised in. It and Buddhism are like so light years apart. I'm, I'm only years. talking about the origins. The okay, origins. okay. On the subcontinent. About way, and yeah, and let me be very clear. Way back in the day, around 500 BC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I absolutely am not talking about the practices in, in modern times at all. Yeah, because Hinduism is super polytheistic. It has its own trinity. Whereas Buddha never wanted to be worshipped. It's a practice. Hinduism has as much pomp and circumstance, arguably more than Christianity and Catholicism do, versus Buddha is a way of life. It's a way of thinking. Yeah, it's but it also has the tantric practices. It also has many deities and stuff as well. It's just not as well known. And then if then we have to get into what type of Buddhism are we talking about? What you yeah. know what I mean? Which Fair. I'm literally just talking about the origin story. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, truly. And often it's helpful to understand. I mean, most religions have a similar origin story and <laughs> that people came in and then it becomes power dynamics and struggles. And yeah, I literally just mean the beginning. Okay. And so they were teaching us these origin stories and stuff. So I got very interested in 
the practices of Buddhism. And there's it happens to appeal to intellectual types a lot because there is so much analytical components to it. Self-reflection, yeah. Yeah, but and straight up theory and debate is a huge part of it. And all of it. it's like it uses the mind. So rather than, I mean, and it's a common misconception too now that a lot of people think that Buddhism is just about mindfulness or people think of Zen, but that's just like oversimplifying it. But anyway, the idea of using the mind instead of just trying to quiet the mind, using the mind to actually analyze the nature of reality, let's say. So I really am drawn to that because of my fascination with stories and perspectives and narratives which is essentially what Buddhism talks about. It's like our mind creates stories about everything and these stories create our reality. So if you change the story you have about your reality, your reality changes, right? Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, so that that's essentially what I'm always working on in every facet, or thinking about anyway. You did this thing that I thought was really cool back, I guess, 2013, where you like drove cross country and you took pictures. Can you, can you talk about that? And you started with de Blasio. I know, which I, I like. don't like saying now because I'm like, no one likes him anymore. <laughs> but back, <laughs> but back, back when, then. Yeah, back then, remember, everyone was really hopeful and excited. Yeah. I got really excited because, oh, my God, he has a black wife and biracial kids like me, you know? <laughs> I was like, if he would have been mayor when I was little, I would have been so excited. So this was, I don't know, it was right after that commercial came out. Remember that Cheerios commercial? Oh, yeah. Oh, that caused a lot of a storm. That's yeah. right. A lot. Remember yeah. that? Yeah. yeah. And so I was like, oh, my gosh, I, I want to go talk to people and tell these stories. And I didn't know what it was going to be or whatever. But I was like, I- I'm going to find people across the country. So I actually contacted, I forget what it was called. But yeah, I- how do you do that? Is there like an interracial? So tell us <laughs> the project, but is there like an interracial yellow pages? <laughs> no, but, but someone... <laughs> Someone actually started, this couple started, I don't know what it was. They did postcards. I don't know, something, something after that commercial came out. So I reached out to them and they put me in touch with some people. And then I just started asking people I knew if they knew anyone who was in an interracial relationship or was mixed. And so I drove all all around talking to people and it was, it was wild. It was wild. I got some hate mail. That's how you know you're doing something good. Yeah. And I mean, well, well, what was interesting was it was, I interviewed some people in, I don't know, some state, maybe it was like Maryland or something and white mother, black father. And she posted about it on her personal Facebook page. And it was literally one of her quote unquote friends who said to her, I think you all should die. What? I don't think this person realized that she had married a black man. I mean, yeah, crazy stuff started happening. But anyway, the good part was everyone I interviewed, they felt it was such a cathartic experience. And it was, they felt they weren't alone. There are all these other people throughout the country having similar experiences. And now more people are talking about it, but I still don't think enough. So I still have that project on the back burner, figuring out what I'm going to do with it. But I'm just happy that I did it. Yeah, that's great. People should check it out. We'll, we'll put yeah. a link to it in the show notes. Oh, thanks. I have a, a pretty canned question for you, but I think we're going to get a good answer out of it. <laughs> <laughs> what advice would you give to your younger self? You could go back to where you were, maybe middle school years or high school years. What would you tell yourself? I was going to say, of course, I mean, you would think I would say, you don't have to work as hard as you do. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if I believe that. I don't know if I believe that. I want to say that that's what I would say. But but I don't know if I, I believe that. I would say, no matter what, you're you're enough. You're enough. That, that's I think what that's I would good say. advice. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, good advice. We're getting close to the hour. I want to switch over to something called speed round. Are you ready? Are you prepared? Have you done the mental exercises? <laughs> I don't know. You guys are you guys are good. You keep us on our toes here. You you actually listen to the show, so you might actually be more ready. Than <laughs> I think I think she's rehearsed her. She's probably rehearsed her at least five times this morning. <laughs> you know those type A Buddhists in Cincinnati, <laughs> <laughs> and especially the North Avondale ones. Oh my gosh! Yeah, jeez. <laughs> <geez. laughs> 
So Abby, what's something about you that most people don't expect? Well, I kind of told you all these things. <laughs> the whole podcast. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I told you all these weird things about me already. I'm like, can I think of another one? They don't expect that I moved to Cincinnati by choice. They don't expect that I have a mom with blue eyes. They don't expect that I grew up in Manhattan, (laughs) born and raised. Yeah, I mean, those are, they don't expect that I didn't have a TV. (laughs) They also, yeah, they don't expect that I was vegetarian as a child either before anyone else was vegetarian and it was very unpleasant. (laughs) But (laughs) yeah, so there's a lot of things that people don't expect actually. Those are all good ones. And and you're right, we did cover all of those in the last four years. I'm like, I'm not not that interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I disagree. (laughs) The one time I can say I disagree and not insult you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, next one. What is a book, movie, or show that you would recommend that has characters that you can relate to? Oh, that I can relate to. Well, one I would recommend would be Rami on Hulu. Should I say why? Yes, yeah. please. Okay. We're gonna know. Because I think it is, I mean, there is no other show, at least that I know of, that that explores Muslims like millennials. And at least in my mind, the struggles that they have to go through that are unique. And the show also has disabled friend and character. So you rarely see that. So the show, I just think, makes you think about a lot of things that other shows don't make you think about. To the point where one of my friends who is white said, yeah, me and my boyfriend were watching and we just don't like Rami. He's just like a bad person. And it was funny because I said that to another friend who is white and he said, that's such a kind of white person thing to say. And he was like, the thing is, would you say that about a white character who had exhibited the same behavior? I don't know if you guys had watched, have watched the show, but I haven't, but like it's been on my no. list and now yeah, I got to watch it. Want to, yeah. He's kind of, you want to like him, but then he does things and then you don't. And then it was just so interesting when my friend said that it's like, I think we put all these expectations on characters of color that you don't put on white characters just because of how we're trained. Yeah, Larry David gets to be an asshole, but we love him, huh? Exactly. So watch it and let me know. In terms of who I can relate to, I can't really relate to anyone on TV. (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) But Hair Love, Hair Love, the little short by Matthew Cherry. Little Abby would have have seen her hair on the big screen like that. It would have changed everything. That's a really good one. What's your favorite mom dish? Is that like what my mom makes or me? Yeah, what your mom makes. <laughs> meatloaf. What'd she put in it? What's what's so awesome about it? I hate saying that word moist. It's <laughs> <laughs> but it's the perfect moistness. You know what I mean? It's not dry. <laughs> it just has a really good flavor. And it makes All right, next time you're on a podcast, just say the ketchup. There's the right amount of ketchup. That might be the state yeah. for me. <laughs> <laughs> moist. There's actually no ketchup on it. She doesn't use ketchup. So, yeah. What? Now I'm intrigued. Oh, exactly. Yeah. 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 (laughs) What's your least favorite food? Goat cheese, which is very controversial and it upsets people. (laughs) Yeah, I I did cringe when you said that. I I got a little angry. Exactly. And to be fair, every few years I really try. I try because I don't want to be that person. Right. And, you know, there's always that person, too, that's like, but this doesn't taste like goat cheese. This doesn't taste like goat cheese. So I've tried so many. <laughs> and I'm like, nope, it still does. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and I'm sure you've tried it mixed with walnuts and honey versus chives and something else, right? Oh, everything. You okay. can't hide the gaminess. I just can't hide it. <laughs> Who is someone out there that you would want to interview on a podcast? That's a good question. Probably Lama Rod Owens, and he's he's a friend of mine, and sometimes we do speaking things together. But I'd want to interview him because he has so much wisdom to share. And if you two don't know about him, please dig in and follow him and listen. 
He is a Black Buddhist teacher. He's from Atlanta, actually, so Southern as well. And he's queer. So he just has so, so, so much to share in terms of, I don't know, just how to navigate this world and not perpetuate violence. And he does it with humor and he's just uncompromisingly himself. So I just want as many people to hear him as possible. So that's why I'd want to interview him. (laughs) Yeah. And then last question, because this is just what we ask everybody. We'd love to get your opinion on this. Opinion, underline the word opinion. Yes, opinion, underline bold. What does being a model minority mean for you? It actually means being really, really happy with who I am and comfortable in my own skin. It means shedding the narrative that has been put upon me by society. That's what it means. And why I am saying it means that is because if I can do that and live my life from a place of self-love and comfort in my own skin, then I can be a model for Black and Brown people (laughs) and young people so that they can let go of that baggage sooner. Yeah. That's awesome. That's so inspiring, Abby. Thank you. And thank you for spending the time with us today. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For more about this episode, links to things mentioned, or to join the conversation, visit modmypod.com. We'd love to hear from you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode. In the animal kingdom, you're ultimately prioritizing your basic needs to be fulfilled, community, and enjoy with others. You're not prioritizing for growth and greed. You're not saying, I need more than my neighbor. I need more than this. I don't have enough. In our modern Western world and modern China world as well, that is priority one. I need more. I need more things. I need more stuff. And it really creates a lot of problems. That's it for now. I've been Roman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all model minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.